Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down and talked to the expert in peak performance, Val Jones. Val is a former elite figure skater, and she has shared the podium with Olympians like Christy Yamaguchi, Tanya Harding, and Nancy Kerrigan. Her own Olympic dream was crushed when she sustained a career-ending knee injury. In recent years, Val has had eight major surgeries in nine years and contracted a potentially deadly complication on the fifth surgery. She has not only survived these, but has found a way to thrive in spite of them. Taken from her own experiences, Val has proven approaches on how to overcome obstacles, persist through problems, and come out on the other side even stronger. She has taken all of her experiences and knowledge and is influencing audiences through keynote speeches, her training programs, and her book, Sharpen Your Edge, that was released last November. I'm happy to introduce to you the only human on the planet who can perform a triple lutz but does not know how to ride a bike, Val Jones, as we sit down and talk about the four C's of peak performance. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. It's Jen DeWall, and today I am sitting down with performance consultant, author, speaker, coach, Val Jones. Now, Val Jones can do a triple LUT, so that's the first starting point. But for those that may not know Val, she's got quite a track record. She has skated professionally with some of the most successful speakers or skaters in the world. And she has just got story after story. But if we're talking about someone that really has expertise in peak performance, there is no better person than to talk to than Val Jones. Val, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm so happy to have you. Well, thanks for having me, Jen. I we've been talking about this for quite some time, so I'm glad we finally oh were able to make it happen. I'm super excited to sit down <laughs> with you today and and share um, any nuggets that I've learned in my years. No kidding, no. And I we are excited to hear them. And yes, I'm so glad that we finally made this happen. Of course, that's how life goes: ebbs, flows, things happen. But we're finally here in this moment. And now there are many reasons why I wanted to bring you on the show. But I want you to introduce yourself to our audience. If you could, could you tell a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and your background with our listeners? Yes, I often joke that I'm probably the most famous, not famous person ever. If one thing would have been different, uh, my whole life would have been different. So yes, I had the privilege and the honor of skating and competing against, yes, names that you probably know, Christy Yamaguchi, Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan. I could clearly see my path to the Olympics. It sometimes felt like it was just, you know, within arm's length. Um, but then tragically, uh, training the triplets, actually, I blew out my knee. And my surgeon was like, well, I think I could put you back together, Val, but it's my professional opinion that you never skate again. You never compete again. And so in just one instant, uh, my whole life fell apart. What I couldn't have even imagined at 18 was that um, sometimes plan A isn't the plan at all. And I couldn't have even fathomed that I would be doing this now and how God would use my story to do what I'm doing now. And so I just feel, I feel blessed. I feel so proud of the things that I've been able to do with seemingly a tragic 
um, story and um, so much I've learned. I, I honestly feel that who I am today was developed at five o'clock in that freezing cold rink when all of my friends were snuggled up in their bed sleeping. Um, it makes you tough. Yeah. And when you, so you mean like getting up and going into the rink and practicing and putting in the work, is that what you're kind of referencing is uh, like yeah. you put your life, time, energy, everything into it. I skated six hours a day, six days a week from the time I was six years old. So I would skate for three hours in the morning, then go to school, then skate three hours in the afternoon, dinner, homework, shower, uh, bed from the time I was six. So um, not a normal childhood. My parents weren't crazy. <laughs> they weren't crazy. They didn't make me do it. Um, the ice is where I wanted uh, to be. And uh, so, yeah, and that was um, 36 hours a week. That was just on ice training. That didn't include my off ice training of strength and conditioning. And I took a ton of ballet classes and uh, later on sports psychology. I worked with a sports psychologist. So um, I did the, I, I, I was all in, I had all my eggs in the proverbial basket, which is kind of what you have to do with a, with a big audacious Olympic dream. You have to be all in. How did you pivot that knowing? Cause I think that there might be even leaders listening where they have a big dream. They have a big goal. They may have invested a lot of time and energy, and maybe that was their primary, all of the eggs in one basket. How did you pivot then upon getting that devastating news that you wouldn't, or you recommended that you shouldn't skate again? Well, I think my heart, Jen, um, um, and, and we've known each other for quite some time, but um, you will get um, a very clear indication of my personality. Um, being a competitor isn't what I do. It's who I am. It's, it's who I've always been. It's who I've who I'll always be. And competing at that level, hanging around, I was so blessed. I got to train not with one, not two, not three, not four, but five. I trained with five Olympians. And um, that's kind of how I came into being a, a speaker and peak performance expert is because from that time, I have paid attention to peak performers. And not just athletes. Everybody hears that I'm an athlete and they automatically think that I only work with athletes. No, peak performers come in all shapes and sizes. They are CEOs. They are entrepreneurs. They are solopreneurs. They're the mom with six kids who's the PTA president and has a sidekick. You know what I mean? So they come in all shapes and forms. And so how I pivoted was I took the things that I learned competing at that level. And I really, over the last, say, 20 years, it, it came upon me like, oh, these things are consistent throughout peak performers. And I used that to my, to my advantage. Um, and I've been in some sticky situations, which we'll talk about um, in our talk today. Um, and so that's kind of how I came up with our topic today, which is the four C's of peak performance. Yeah. And it's just things that I've learned through life. And I, I'm not sure who said it, but somebody once said, um, what do you get when you don't get what you want? And the answer is you get experience. And so everything that I've learned, I've either learned firsthand the hard way 
um, you know, graduated from the, from the hard school, the hard knocks of life, or I've learned by watching, training with, and interacting with other peak performers. I love that. A deep amount of experience. And it's not just any athlete that you maybe initially learned this from. These are Olympians. These are high caliber you know, just like yourself, investing six hours in training. These are not people that take it lightly. I can tell you too, that I had a past in figure skating and guess what? I couldn't do any of the things because I was just the girl that wanted to wear the leotard and the skirt. And I so admired, you know, while you were skating with them, I was writing them letters, hoping that I could be their fan base. So I guess my, the closest I've ever gotten to Christy Yamaguchi, I think was writing her a letter or in, if she, writing her a letter because they used to give you these books of like addresses to the stars. And so I wrote her a letter and then she sent me back a signed postcard. Ooh. Yeah. And she, she also sent my best friend one too. So it wasn't that special. And they actually were stamped and I was so disheartened. Like, what? She didn't really personally write that. But, you know, in any event, I was kind of that observer, whereas you were the one that actually did that. And I love that you have this message that you're going to be able to look at peak performers because it's not just athletes. I love that you clarify that. Yeah, we might think about performance as athletes wanting to do their best, but all of us want to do our best no matter where we are. What separates a peak performer? And then we're going to go into the four C's, but what separates a peak performer maybe from a typical performer, maybe from me. I mean, I know one of those is time. Like what other things separate us? For me, my definition of a peak performer who is somebody who can execute under pressure. And it applies to everything. It applies to business. It applies to finances. It applies to marriage. It applies to relationships. If you can execute under pressure, to me, that is my definition of a peak performer. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Under pressure, which is the under hardest pressure. time. That's yeah. when many of us put our, I guess, might put our head in the sand or might just say, I'm ready to run. So yeah. you came up with a framework on the four C's of peak performance. And I'm so excited to talk about this because it's based on your experience of observing all these extraordinary people. What are the four C's of peak performance that we're going to be walking through? So I'll run through them real quickly and then we'll double back and we'll go, we'll, we'll, we'll navigate through each one individually. So the four C's are commitment, compromise, control, and course correction. Okay. So number one, the first one really speaks to my heart being committed. When people tell, when I tell people that I was headed for the Olympics and, and that I trained six hours a day when I was six years old, the question I get asked most often is, how did you do that? How did you do it? And it was because I had a dream. I had a dream and I was fully committed to it. Um, if, if, you're, if your listeners haven't listened to Simon uh, or read Simon Sinek's Start With Why, that is a powerful book. I knew my why. I knew at six years old that I wanted to represent the United States of America and compete as a figure skater in the Olympics. And I think when you know your why, the how doesn't become necessarily easy because it was never easy, but it becomes more tolerable. It becomes a little bit more palatable. 
Um, trust me. You know, there were times at six years old and my alarm went off at 4.30 in the morning and I would hit it. And I would think, this is nuts. I don't know. And even at six years old, I was fully aware that none of my friends were doing this. But I knew my why. I knew my why. And so whatever it is, if you are the CEO, if you're an entrepreneur, if if you're in a marriage, if whatever it is in your life, you, you have to be fully committed. It's not something, and especially the bigger your dream, the more audacious your dream, you can't go at it, you know, half, you know what, you have to be, you have to be all in. And, and when you are pursuing a dream of going to the Olympics, you, you literally have to put all your eggs in one basket. So being committed for me was sacrificing what I wanted now for what I wanted most. And so on those mornings when my alarm went off and I didn't want to get out of bed, I was like, you know what? There will come a day when I can rest. But today's not that day. That comes later. So sacrificing what you want now for what you want most. And the other important thing about being committed is the bigger your dream, the bigger your goal, the more outside of your comfort zone it is, you have to accept failure as part of the process. Okay. Now, how? How do you do that, right? Because I know that you can be committed, but you're talking also about performance at levels that I could yeah. only dream to aspire to. Yeah. And, you know, how do we stay committed when we might feel like we're feeling or someone else is faster, better, whatever we might say? How do we, how do we then, you know, persevere through that? <laughs> well, so I feel like it's a, it's a mind shift. Um, cause let's be honest. Okay. You know, the day came when I was, okay, I'm going to learn the double axle today. It's not like I put my skates on and went out there and did it on the first try. Not Christy Amaguchi did that. Not Brian Boitano did that. That's not how it works. And so if you can switch your expectation to this isn't failure, it's feedback. It is feedback. So, I'm not sure if Malcolm Gladwell is right in his 10,000 hours to master something. But Jen, I can tell you, girl, I probably fell 10,000 times before I ever landed on my feet. But here's what it was. Every time I fell, it was feedback. Did I not jump high enough? Did I not rotate fast enough? Was I, look, <laughs> if you're rotating two, two and a half, three rotations in the air in under a second. And you are, if this is my body, if you are even 1% off axis, do you see that? 1% off axis. A little thing called gravity takes over. And guess where you end up? With your butt on the ice. It wasn't ever feedback or it wasn't ever failure. It was just feedback until collectively, 10,000 falls later, I took all the failure and all the feedback of those 10,000 attempts and then you land on your feet. And then you're like, oh, how do I do, how, how do I replicate that? How do I do that again? So I don't know what it is for your listeners, but failure isn't such a bad thing if you can make that mind switch to, it's not failure, it's just 
feedback. And I feel like when, when you're chasing down your goals and dreams, it's the feedback is, is part of the process. You have to do the right thing at the right time and in the right order, right? If you were building a house, you wouldn't put the roof on before you poured the foundation. The right thing at the right time and in the right order. And that's why um, I'm so blessed to have uh, trained with the people that I trained with because to have coaches that can see things that you don't see and know things that you don't know to tell you what the process is. I think that's an important reminder too that I think a lot of people, we we live in this place that we expect everything to come maybe faster than what we want it to, yes. or uh, we'd like to read a book to hope that maybe it will resolve something for us, a pain that we have. And we don't necessarily look at it from that structural perspective of like, everything's going to have its place. You can't just rush to one piece. With, you can't cut corners with it. <laughs> There's no progress within that. No. And I probably really did have to fall 10,000 times before, um, before I ever landed. And, and failure is such, such a, a shameful thing in our society. And, um, uh, my poor kids, you know, growing up, I have two children and, you know, we, my husband and I, we never protected them from the consequences and of their actions. And we let them fail. And, um, Here's how we responded to it. They'd come home. Oh, mom, I didn't make the team. Good. What'd you learn? Oh, mom, I didn't do so good on the test. We'd say, good. What'd you learn? No matter what happened, good or bad, whatever it was, our response was, good. What'd you learn? And um, they're young adults now. And and so I had something happened in my own business that I didn't it didn't quite go the way that I wanted to. And um, I was telling my family about it at dinner. And my daughter goes, good. What did you learn? And I was like, oh, <laughs> you were listening. <laughs> and so the tables have, have turned. But uh, the last thing I'll say about the failure feedback uh, loop is that if you want, as part of being a peak performer, if you want to get to that next level, and here's a little truth bomb, and I'm not a Debbie Downer, Jen, I'm not, but here's the truth. Whatever habits, thoughts, and actions and behaviors that got you to this point in time are not going to be the same behaviors that get you to the next level. So if you're a million-dollar business and you want to go multi-million-dollar business, you have to do multi-million dollar business things. You have to think, act, behave, and have the habits. And that's where uh, surrounding yourself with mentors and the people who already occupy the space that you want to be, go hang out with them. Go see what, how, what they do. What, what, when, uh, so I grew up, grew up in Sacramento and I actually left home when I was 11 so that I could go train in the Bay Area with Brian Boitano and his coach. And let me tell you, going from my rank to where me and my friends trained and then seeing how Brian trained was like night and day. 
How so? How so? Like, were you just like, maybe just, I need to do more? Okay. Or what did you notice? So, I mean, just, it was, it was just the little simple things. Like, um, I would just, uh, put my skates on and go out and skate. Brian would take 10 to 15 minutes. He would warm up. He would do some jogging. He would do other exercises. Um, he had a little journal that he would journal his, what his training was for the day. Um, he just thought, acted, and did different habits than my friends back home did. And when I was then surrounded by him and four other Olympians, all of a sudden, my behaviors had to come up. My rituals had to come up. My thought patterns, my habits, everything had to come up so that I could be competitive in that environment. I love that message. It made me better. So yeah, whatever habits you have, if you want to get to the next level, seek out the people who already exist there and emulate, don't copy, but emulate what they do. And soon you'll find yourself rising to that level as well. That's such an important reminder because I think a lot of us, again, we want to cut corners maybe, or we just don't, we want that goal, but maybe not bad enough. (laughs) <laughs> that we're not willing to look at someone and say, yeah, I'd be willing to do that. <laughs> and being committed, Jen, is, is hard and it, and it hurts. I moved away from my family when I was 11. I left my dad and my siblings. Um, I didn't go to high school. I didn't date. I didn't party. I didn't go to dances or football games. You want to know what I did? I trained. Being committed for me meaning, means I had to train those hours. And it's the perfect segue into our next C. All right, let's go with it. So the first C, we got to be committed. We got to be a peak performer, got to be committed. What's our second C? The second C is you are going to have to compromise. Oh, no, Val. No one likes compromise. (laughs) You're going to have to give a little to get a little, or you're going to have to give a lot to get a lot. And I'm not sure what it is for your audience. Is it time? Is it money? Is it carbohydrates? Like mama likes her Oreo cookies, you know, but unfortunately Olympic <laughs> Olympic figure skaters don't eat Oreo cookies and they are my favorite. And um, how much are you willing to compromise? Well, only you can answer that. And the amount of compromise, I feel like it really is, it really does go hand in hand um, with your goal. Make sure though, I, I feel like I'd be negligent if I said, don't compromise the wrong things. Yeah. You know, um, compromising um, fast food or not going out and partying um, or dating or going to dances, that seemed that seemed easy for me because I was just like, look, I have a goal and I have a dream and it's bigger than my right here and right now. Um, yeah, it was hard. Um, but here's here's what, part of compromise is it's giving up kind of going back to commitment, giving up what you want now for what you want most. And Jocko Willink, he's a Navy, Navy SEAL. He says this all the time that discipline equals freedom. So I've been an athlete most of my life. I've spent the last 13 years in, in the CrossFit arena um, doing that. I'm pretty regimented about my my nutrition. In fact, I don't even like to say diet. But here's the thing. It it sounds contradictory. Well, how can discipline equal freedom? 
Right. Um, and using nutrition as, a, as an example, I am not going to miss birthday cake with my kids. I'm just not. Like there isn't anything that I'm training for that I would miss that. And, you know, I, but here's the thing. I can't eat a whole birthday cake every day. I'd weigh 800 pounds and I have diabetes. But when it comes time for my, my children or even my own birthday, because I know I've done the hard work before and have been disciplined with my nutrition, I can enjoy the crap out of that piece of cake. And it gives me freedom to enjoy it rather than beating myself up over, oh my God, how many burpees am I going to have to do to burn off this cake? Or how many miles am I going to have to run? No, I don't have to do that because I have been disciplined with it. So would that be kind of your advice if, if someone is struggling to think about how do I even start with looking at where I should compromise? Like, is there a specific way that we should look at compromise? Because I think if we're not focused, we could very quickly say, well, I guess maybe I can give that up because I have to compromise somehow, but then it may not be the right thing to compromise. Uh, do you have any recommendations for how you would even approach that? Well, so I feel like the easiest thing to, to compromise and give up, and it doesn't matter what you want to do, but it's this. And, and Jen, I'm guilty too. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Social media. Get rid of it. I was your face. <laughs> I, I don't love it. So like, I will agree with you. I'm awful at Instagram. I'm, I'm really yeah. not great at Facebook, but okay. Yeah. So compromise for you is like, and why social media? Is it because you notice that that is a deterrent to the goal or why, why social media? I just feel like as a society, we are always, you know, like this on our phones and um, understanding that when I look at other women my age or in my, in my business and they're killing it and, and, I'm, and I'm comparing my beginning with their middle or their, their peak. And it doesn't make me feel good. There's nothing about social media that makes me feel good because what you're seeing is somebody's highlight reel and it's not, it's not true. Or maybe it, maybe it's not social media. Maybe it's TV. Maybe it's gaming. But when you look at, when you talk about compromise and how do you decide what you can compromise, what is interfering with you? What is taking time away from you that won't produce anything? If watching watching TV doesn't produce anything, get rid of it. If gaming doesn't produce anything, unless you're making money off of it, right? Get rid of it. So if it's not directly and positively impacting your goal, you got to compromise and you got to get rid of it. That's how I I love that. It sounds, but you, you know, to everyone, it sounds like what you're saying is first and foremost, you've got to have a real honest conversation. What are you not giving up that's actually keeping you stuck? And it can't be something that you're blaming on someone else. You have to look at your own life, your own choices, how you spend your energy, and then go from there. So, all the peak performers across the board, they are dead serious about their habits. And if you, if I were to follow you, for three to five days and watch your habits. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know right? if I'd be scared or excited. <laughs> the habits of a peak performer, I'll say, you know, for an average person, uh, for lack of a better word, the habits of, a, of, of an Olympian 
versus the habits of just, you know, the weekend warrior could not be any further apart. And so not only does discipline equal, equal, equal freedom, but when you are consistent with your habits, consistency equals momentum. Consistency equals momentum. So whether your goal is a business or a relationship or finance or whatever it is, look at your habits. If you're if whatever your, your habits are, are not contributing to, to the positivity of that goal, get rid of it, be consistent, be consistent about it, and be disciplined about it. Yes, people. I love this, Val. We've got to be consistent. And if I said the other thing, it sounds like no more excuses. If you said watch TV for the last three hours, can you really be mad if you didn't get a new client or that promotion if you're not doing anything to invest or lose, whatever your goal is. But it sounds like there's that piece of, there's no excuses. You just have your lay of choices and you've got to choose which ones you bend on. Exactly. Do you want to know what you should never compromise though? Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Never, ever, ever compromise your morals or your ethics. That is a slippery slope that you do not want to go down, which brings us perfectly into the next C, which is control. Control. All right. Three C's. Control. All right. And it's not what you think, Jen. It's not over anyone or, or over anything. It is over yourself and your emotions. Mm-hmm. The um, I don't know if this is a word. The peakiest of peak performers I know and have had the privilege to work uh, work with are Navy SEALs. They are in a very heightened state. Their very lives of themselves and their teammates um, are at risk. You want to talk about performing under pressure, um, but they are all cool, calm, and collected. Every single one of them, they don't get rattled. Now, if you do not have control over yourself or over your emotions, um, I believe that this is a skill that you can actually learn. I think some people are are, are blessed with more control than others, um, but it is something that you can learn. And I like to tell the story. And here's how I learned it. Um, after I blew the qualifier for the, I believe it was the 1986 nationals. I came back to the rink and, and Brian, uh, said, Val, there, there are two kinds of skaters. He said, um, there are great skaters. Now I'm going to pause here. Brian was a great skater in the seven years that I've trained with him. I think I may have seen him fall in. I can only count on maybe one hand. No kidding. He is by far the best executioner and the best, like his technique is irritatingly perfect. And we're talking about Brian Boitano because Brian Boitano, we yeah. don't get to call him Brian. Yeah, Brian. <laughs> okay. So then he goes and he's like, so there are great skaters. And then there are those that skate great. Well, guess what? I skated great. The poor judges, they never knew who was going to show up at, at, on the ice that day. Was it going to be Val who was on fire? Or was it going to be Val whose fanny is on ice? So after blowing the 86 Nationals, um, 
I have to, I have to stop and, and, and tell, just educate a little bit. So most of the jumps in figure skating, you enter into going backwards, except one, the double axle, you enter into going forward. So I think it was a little bit of a mind screw with me because I could see where I was going and it kind of, you know, freaked me out. When a figure skater goes for an intended jump, um, say the double double axle, and doesn't complete the rotation, the intended rotation, is called popping. Okay. Popping so because I would... Fall. Uh, popping, you... Um, instead of doing a double axle, I would only do a single axle. Okay, okay. Quite okay, so I popped it. So I popped, I popped my double axle, which cost me the trip to the Nationals that year. And so my coach says, we're going to do 100 double axles today. If you fall, that's fine. If you touch down with your arm on the ice, that's fine. I don't care if you fall out of it, that's fine. But if you pop, you're going to start over. Jen, I had to start over not once, not twice, but three times. I was there for nine and a half hours that day. And I was the closest that I ever came to a condition called rhabdo. I couldn't walk for two weeks. Here's the thing, why I tell that story. I gained control over my mind in that. And for the rest of my competitive career, I did not pop a double axle again in competition. Ever. Wow. The fear and the panic was trained out of me. Fear and panic can be trained out. It doesn't go easy but it can go, but you've got to have control over your emotions. And that's what made Brian a great skater and made me only a skater who skated great. (laughs) But that's a really powerful story because I think there is still the piece where, gosh, if I think about my temperament at that age, I imagine that if my coach said that I needed to draw that, I'd be like, I'm done. You know, that is the breaking point where my emotions absolutely would have gotten the best of me. How do you remind yourself that you get to stay in control, that you are the one that controls it? Do you have any tips for your your peak performers and how you remind them that they always get to choose that? Well, I'm only human. (laughs) You know, I, I don't always execute over it well. But I have to remind myself that that, you know, like let's take COVID for for the you know, like this is a very real thing that we are still in. The only thing that you can control over is your attitude and your work ethic. Right. That's it. That's all you get to control over. And so when I feel myself sliding um to a point where I'm trying to control other than those two things, I kind of have to, you know, whack myself in the head and be like, okay. I can't control that. And you see, that's where Tanya lost it. There's so many things I want to add to that, but I won't. <laughs> but where Tanya lost it. Tanya Harding. That's who we're talking mm-hmm. about, people okay. that may not be as familiar. Yeah. Um, she and her team allegedly, well, she didn't, but her her husband at the time and her bodyguard whacked Nancy Ger- Kerrigan in the knee with a uh, with a bat right. or something. Yeah, like a pipe or something. You cannot control the outcome. And I know that that sounds counterintuitive. You can train. 
You can control your attitude. You can control your workout ethic, but you cannot control the outcome. And that is where Tanya lost it because her or her team tried to control the outcome. Now, I'm going to be completely transparent with you and your audience. There were times that I skated and I should have won, but I didn't. And there were times that I skated that I did win and I shouldn't have. You can't control the outcome. You can only control your attitude and your work ethic. That's it. That's all you can control. And so as you're traversing to your on the path to, to your peak performance, ask yourself, am I controlling those two things? It's, it's, it, it doesn't have to be any harder than that. Because anything outside of your work ethic and your attitude, you really don't have control over. I think that's a really powerful point that you just made that we have to detach. We can do our best to get to that outcome, but we can't control it. We can make sure that we have the choices, but we can't control it. Like things will always change. The only thing that you can do, um, um, and I'm not a Debbie Downer, I'm not, but here's what I know to be true about life. If you have a heartbeat, at some point in time, you are going to experience pain, heartbreak, disappointment, and fear. And here's what I try to do when I am facing those. I ask myself, how does my best self show up in this moment? Mm. What would the very best version of me look like in this scenario or in this situation? Do that. I love that. So acting, you know, from the person that we want to be, maybe yeah. not necessarily who we are today, but who that person is that's accomplished that goal or strategy or whatever the task is at hand. I mean, yeah. I think that gives you- things will go wrong. Yeah, things will go wrong. It's okay. We talked about failure earlier, but how does my best self handle that? Yeah. So, so what happens? So your fourth C is course correct. So is that is that what we're saying? When things go wrong, here's where we go. Do you see what I did there? It was a perfect segue. I loved it. That was great. So here's what I know about peak performers, all peak performers, is they are extremely and highly self-aware. They know when they are going off track and they can make a small, minute adjustment to get back on track. And so eventually, in that that double axle or in that triple X or whatever, if I was back to that 1% axis off, I was able to, to figure that out and correct. And I can only tell you how hard it is to correct when you're turning three revolutions in under a second, but it is possible. And I've worked with other Olympic athletes. I've worked with losers and oh my gosh, like the, the amount of course correction that, that athletes make are truly, truly incredible. But it applies to anything. You don't have to be an athlete. If, if your marketing plan isn't going, course correct. Are you a speaker and all of your, <laughs> and all of your keynotes got canceled? Course correct. Yeah. If your parenting tactic isn't working, course correct. Like there's not a single thing that I can think of where it doesn't apply. Like course correction. Um, is so critical because, right, they say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over, expecting a different result. Well, stop that. Do something different. Figure it out. 
Because honestly, the truth is, the path to success is never a straight line, as much as we want to think that it is. It's just not. And everything you do, and now we're back to that habit. Do you see how everything interacts? I love it. (laughs) So everything you do is either bringing you toward your goal or pulling it away from your goal. So I had written on on a little index card, um, you know, being thin and figure skating is a big deal. And um, so I had written this on, on a little index card and I kept it on my fridge for years. And it said this, Val. Is what you're about to put in your mouth bringing you towards your Olympic goal or away from it? And I had that on my fridge for years because as an athlete, I had to fuel my body with good, nutritious things. So in the spirit of you can only control your attitude and your work ethic, as you were working towards your peak performance, is what you're doing bringing yourself to your goal or away? I mean, it's a yes or no, right? Yes. And it's, yeah, again, thinking about taking that responsibility. I love how you brought that back to reinforcing commitment. Yeah. The the Olympics, this is where I want to be. Is this bringing, is eating this, knowing that nutrition is so important, going to help get me there to where I want to be. And if it's not, why in the heck am I doing that? Yeah. How much time do we have time for like one more story? Yeah, we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's do it. I want to hear it. So in, in, in course correction, now this is going to be different. Have you heard somebody in the corporate setting say, oh, good leaders, they lead from the front. Have you heard that? Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Val says, no, lead from the back. And here's that story. This is actually in my book called Sharpen Your Edge, which was just released last November. Congratulations. Um, yes, thank you. So my husband and I went to Banff, Canada, uh, right before COVID hit last year. And as part of our trip, we took a dog sled tour. And the lead musher, he started to explain what the trip was going to be about. And he said, okay, first thing as a musher, you have to know your animals intimately, individually, and then as a team. You have to know your animal's strengths. You have to notice you have to know their weaknesses. You have to be able to detect when they're tired, fatigued, hungry, when they have to go to the bathroom, when they're injured, when they're, uh, when they're playing bored. So he goes on and says his, the first two dogs are the lead dogs. They are the smartest. They can find the path when sometimes the musher can't. Um, they are also very acceptable to instruction. So if the musher tells them to go a separate a different way, they're going to do it. The next two dogs are called the pacer dogs. They set the pace for the team. Now, you cannot run a trail at the same speed. You have to slow down. You have to speed up when it comes to a hill. Um, And those dogs can also know in each other when each other is tired or bored or fatigued or injured. And then he tells about the last two dogs, which are your strength dogs. Now, these dogs... (laughs) I almost, I'm only five feet tall. Um, so they, I almost looked at them right in the eye. I mean, they outweighed me by like <laughs> 50 to 75 pounds. Uh, they were huge. Um, they are the strength dogs. They're the brute dogs. They pull the most weight. The musher says, if you come to a hill, you are supposed to jump off the sled and run 
with the dogs, run with the team. If you do not, your strength dogs will look back at you to like wonder what it is you're doing. Why are you not running with the team? So my husband went first. I went second. Soon enough, we come to an incline, a pretty, actually a pretty steep hill. And I thought, I don't know this man very well. I don't know if he was just joking or not, because it seems kind of funny that the dogs would know if you were on the sled or not. And I thought to myself, I am five feet tall, 120 something pounds, right? That dog is not going to, the dog outweighs me by 50 pounds, right? He's not going to know. Well, sure enough, Jen, my male strength dog, his name was Kenai. He gave me a dirty look that I swear if looks could kill, I would be dead. He did know that I wasn't running with the team. And I was torn between laughing. So like I was laughing so hard, my stomach hurt. But I also like wanted to jump off the sled and run like I was Usain Bolt because I, I didn't want Kenai to, you know, bite me. <laughs> um, and so that is what, so, and here's what, here's how I, I came up with this theory of leading from the back. If you were leading from the front, how do you know what your team is doing behind you? Right. How do you know when your team is fatigued or hungry or has to go to the bathroom or bored or injured? You don't know. But if you are leading from the back, you can see your team. You can keep an eye on them. And here, we're going to pull it all back in. If you need to, if you identify that, you can course correct. Oh my gosh. I love that story. Really about leading from the back. Leading from the back. That is such an important like ending story to think about how we want to show up as leaders. You shared the four C's today um, to commit to compromise, to control, and course correct. Val, how do people get in touch with you? You can reach me at www.valjonespeaks.com or my email is val at valjonespeaks.com. Oh my gosh. So send her emails, go to her website. Val, thank you so much for coming uh, coming on the show today and helping our leaders find their peak performance. I'm so happy. I I hope... uh, I honestly hope that you and your listeners be doing, have everything you want in life. Go after that big audacious dream and mostly find the champion in you. I love that. Thank you so much, Val. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast episode of The Leadership Habit. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Val Jones. And if you want to connect with her, you can head on over to valjonespeaks.com. If you found a lot of value on this, or you know someone that wants to be a peak performer, don't forget to share this episode with them. And of course, please, we grow our influence by reviews. So if you can, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast streaming service. Until next time.